The passages for day, today, as always, are in your bulletin and they will also be up on the screen. If you have a device or that old-fashioned hard copy of the Bible, surely they will be there too. And our first reading is from Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 1 to 18. If a man divorces his wife and she leaves him and marries another man, should he return to her again? Would not the land be completely defiled? But you have lived as a prostitute with many lovers. Would you now return to me, declares the Lord? Look up to the barren heights and see. Is there any place where you have not been ravished? By the roadside you sat waiting for the lovers, sat like a nomad in the desert. You have defiled the land with your prostitution and wickedness. Therefore the showers have been withheld and no spring rains have fallen. Yet you have the brazen look of a prostitute. You refuse to blush with shame. Have you not just called to me, my father, my friend from my youth? Will you always be angry? Will your wrath continue forever? This is how you talk, but you do all the evil you can. During the reign of King Josiah, the Lord said to me, Have you seen what faithless Israel has done? She has gone up on every high hill under every spreading tree and has committed adultery there. I thought that after she had done all this, she would return to me, but she did not, and her unfaithful sister Judah saw it. I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. Yet I saw that her unfaithful sister Judah had no fear. She also went out and committed adultery. Because Israel's immortality um, immorality mattered so little to her, she defiled the land and committed adultery with stone and wood. In spite of all this, her unf uh, unfaithful sister Judah did not return to me with all of her heart, but only in pretense, declares the Lord. The Lord said to me, Faithless Israel is more righteous than unfaithful Judah. Go, proclaim this message toward the north. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will frown on you no longer, for I am faithful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt. You have rebelled against the Lord your God. You have scattered your favors to foreign gods under every spreading tree and have not obeyed me, declares the Lord. Return, faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. I will choose you one from a town and two from a clan, and bring you to Zion. Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will lead you with knowledge and understanding. In those days, when your numbers have increased greatly in the land, declares the Lord, people will no longer say, the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It will never enter their minds or be remembered. It will not be missed, nor will another one be made. At that time, they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all nations will gather in Jerusalem to honor the name of the Lord. No longer will they follow the stubbornness of their evil hearts. In those days, the people of Judah will join the people of Israel, and together they will come from a northern land to the land I gave your ancestors as an inheritance." And the second reading is from Matthew, chapter 19, verses 1 through to 12. 
When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give, by, give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is a situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Ho ho, <laughs> here we go. <laughs> Divorce, remarriage, and singleness, big topics, right? Uh, but really personal topics, and we need to wade into this with sensitivity. Most people here will have been touched by divorce either firsthand or through someone close to us. And almost all of us will know something of the grief and the trauma that is attached inevitably to the ending of a marriage, and we'll also know, most likely, some of the issues pertaining to remarriage. Preaching on this is like walking into a minefield <laughs> uh, because the issues are complex and many of us would ask, what right has the church got to stick their noses in and say what people can and can't do in the privacy of their own lives? Well, uh, Jesus spoke into this and we're glad he did. What, but why should we today walk into this minefield? The answer is because we're already standing in a minefield, that's why. We're not walking into one, we're standing in it. Now, in our church, there are people who are, some people who are single, happily so, some unhappily so. People who are single because of divorce or because of bereavement. Some are just too young to think about marriage, but they're soaking up the views of our culture, right? And then we have married people, some who have never been divorced. We have married people who have been divorced, who are now remarried. Some people who've been married and are still divorced and not remarried. Some people who are happily married. Some people who aren't happily married. Okay? So then, and most of us will have family and friends, of course, who have their very strong views on this, different to our own. Some who are content. Others who've made messes of their lives because of the decisions they've made and the paths they've walked down. Um, other people here are heading towards marriage. Um, some people are content in their situation, others aren't, okay. We're about to wade into all that complexity, <laughs> okay. Now why wade into a minefield? Because we're standing in it. 
Now, if I was standing in a literal minefield, what I'd be desperate for is for someone to lead me through to a path of safety. Jesus is about to lead us. Um, Yes, but his words are 2,000 years old. Are they still relevant? Well, yes, because they still address our issues. In 1975, the divorce laws changed in Australia. Before then, you had to go to a judge to get a divorce. You had to prove, often through a private investigator, that your spouse had been unfaithful. But in 1975, Australia adopt no-fault divorce. So after 46 years now of living with that legislation and that massive change in our life together, now in our culture, we no longer ask the question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? We just assume it is. Okay, that's our culture. But Jesus here addresses that way of thinking. He addresses our way of thinking, you see. And then in verse 10, we heard the disciples saying exactly what many people think today. Well, if marriage is such hard work, it's better not to marry, right? Isn't that precisely what people are thinking today? It's better not to marry. Okay, so Jesus is speaking to us. Now, the Pharisees are the ones, they're asking Jesus about this in topics. In answer, he'll go from divorce to remarriage to singleness, so that's our route. Uh, Great teaching, teaching that leads us out of a minefield. But of course, the Pharisees weren't listening to Jesus to be taught by him. In verse three, we read that they came to test him. In other words, they didn't want to learn. They came not to learn. Now the question is, do you? Do you want to learn? Will you come to Jesus asking the question, to be receptive to what he has to say. Will you let him teach you? Or will you only come to test him, that is to see if his view conforms to your own, and then write him off or give him a tick? We have to let him teach us because, friends, we're in a minefield and we need leading out of it. Let's pray. Father, we come to Jesus and we want to come, yes, admittedly, with the complexities of this issue with the pain of what may or may not have happened in our own lives, the lives of those close to us. We need your direction. And we pray, help us then to listen really carefully. And please speak to us, whatever situation we particularly are in, uh, please speak to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So the Pharisees come to Jesus with the question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Or in today's terms, is no-fault divorce okay? Jesus' answer has two parts to it. The place he begins is the Bible. He says, haven't you read? He begins with the Bible. He begins with the start of the Bible in the description of how God set up the world. Haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female? Now, we wouldn't have thought that statement was controversial, would you? I've got much to say that, and I wrote a lot and then deleted it because it's not the time or place because our topic's divorce. But I'd love to talk to you about that sometime, all right? 
But on the topic of marriage and divorce, Jesus takes us back to the creator's design because God's design still applies. That's the point. God made people male and female, and in Genesis chapter two, he then says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What's marriage? Marriage is a man and a woman leaving and cleaving. That's it. Um, of course, there's sex that consummates the marriage, but that doesn't make people married. Marriage happens when two people leave their families of origin and they cleave together in a way recognized by their culture. In ours, it's through the wedding ceremony. And they cleave together to establish a new family. That cleaving involves a man and a woman entering into a covenant together, a marriage covenant. Um, as a minister, I get to perform marriages, of course, marry people, and I can declare in the name of God a person, uh, two people, to be husband and wife right after they've made that vow, their vows. That's when it happens, okay? It's the making of the vows, the entering into that covenant relationship that makes people married, that forges the marriage when a man and a woman enter into that by making promises together. That's when God joins them together. In the name of God, I declare you to be husband and wife. You may kiss the bride. <laughs> okay, so says Jesus, they are no longer two, but one. And then he says in Matthew 19, therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So the point, the, his first point in answering this question about whether it's no-fault divorce is okay Jesus takes us back to the creator's design. Now that is significant because we are no longer in Eden, we are outside of Eden. Sin has entered the world. Sin has entered our marriages. And yet even though with the pain of sin and the reality of sin in our marriages, in our broken and fallen world, Jesus still says, guess what? The creator's design still applies, all right? He says no one should try and pull marriage apart now that means that it is meant to be for life in the way in which God designed things. And that therefore means that it's wrong and trivial uh, uh, to, to end a marriage for any and every reason, or to think about doing so. You know, uh, what could be the reason? Oh, we've fallen out of love, we no longer love each other, or we're tired with one another, or they're not attractive to me anymore. Jesus says what God has joined together let no one separate. Now, just pause, let that sink in, okay? Because we need to take that on board. Now, <laughs> to some of us, if you're, particularly if you're young and single, you'll think this sounds like a terrible lifelong trap. Who wants to be trapped like that? If this is the case, it's better not to marry, right? We're gonna get to that in verse 10, right? <laughs> But the other thought is that it sounds like divorce, therefore, would be a sin. Let uh, those whom God has joined together, let no one separate. Therefore, it sounds like you can't. You, you, you couldn't divorce, because Jesus said that. And then we'd think, well, how does Jesus' statement there fit with God allowing divorce in the Old Testament under some conditions? Hence, verse seven, the question. Why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Now, Jesus corrects them immediately. Moses permitted you to divorce your wife. He didn't command it. He permitted it. 
divorce was allowed, but it wasn't mandated as necessary, right? It, it's a provision, but it's not a command. And he permitted it because your hearts were hard. He says, but it wasn't this way from the beginning. What's changed is that sin has entered the world. Sin has entered our marriages. Husbands sin against their wives. Wives sin against their husbands. And sometimes the wound is so grievous, so serious, that the marriage covenant has been completely broken. That is, the marriage has been destroyed. Divorce is not the sin. It's the breaking of the marriage vows that's the sin. And then the hard-heartedness that comes when someone refuses to repent. That's what ends the marriage. That's what God hates. Divorce doesn't end the marriage. Sin ends the marriage. Divorce is a provision. It's a legal tidying up of the reality. The declaration legally that the marriage has been destroyed and is over. Why did Moses permit divorce? He did it for the sake of the victim in the marriage. He did it to clear things in the eyes of everyone, to allow them a way out that's sanctioned in the eyes of the community so that everyone could say that person is no longer beholden to the person they married to. That not person is no longer married to them and therefore they are free to remarry. Um, now, is Jesus going against this? That was the Old Testament. Is Jesus going against this when he says, what God has joined together, let no one separate? Is he now saying that divorce and remarriage is now never, ever permitted? No. The words, let no one separate, mean that no one should deliberately seek to break apart a marriage through the breaking of a marriage covenant. But they do not mean that divorce can never happen where the vows have already been broken. And the proof of this, if you're wondering about that, is that God himself is a divorcee. Now, you probably haven't realized this. When I say this and show you, it's a revelation. Um, yet it came out in the reading from Jeremiah, chapter three. So Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel are split. You've got the northern 10 tribes, Israel, and the southern two tribes called Judah. And... Um, Speaking about the northern 10 tribes, God says in Jeremiah 3, I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. At Sinai, God entered into a, like a marriage covenant with Israel, but they broke the covenant through spiritual adultery again and again and again and again and again. They were, they were hard-hearted, they refused to repent. And so to God's great pain, he divorced Israel. But then we hear of him remarrying her. Verse 14 of the same chapter, return faithless Israel, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. I will choose you, one from a town and two from a clan, and bring you to Zion. And he remarries her, Hosea 2. In that day, declares the Lord, this day is being prophesied in the future, you will call me my husband, you will no longer call me my master. He's speaking to Israel. So God himself divorced Israel and then remarried her. Now that says divorce and remarriage are clearly possible, right? And it's not necessarily a sin. Now, if possible, on what grounds, therefore, we need to ask? Can a man divorce his wife for any reason? No, because 
not every reason is a sin. If your wife suddenly doesn't look like, you know, 30 years later, as she did when you married her, that's not a sin. Uh, if you fall out of love, that's not a sin. Uh, if you don't like her cooking, you know, or she burns the roast, that's not a sin, okay? And then you could argue for the husband, you know, there's plenty of reasons on that side too, so I don't want to be biased, okay? <laughs> um, and of course, not all sins break a marriage covenant. You know, um, a lie or being hurtful in your words it doesn't necessarily break a marriage covenant. But some sins do. And in the Old Testament, in the Bible, there are two, two sins. These are the biblical grounds for divorce. The first is adultery. Jesus says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The sexual immorality, the committing of a sexual act outside of marriage, the marriage covenant when you're married, that is grounds for divorce. When a couple marry, they, they covenant to be faithful to one another, forsaking all others, they say. They pledge to God. And that pledge is wonderful. You, what you're giving at that point is your, you're giving to your, your fiancé or your spouse a, a, a bedrock of trust, which is the basis for relationship. You're saying, I'm, I'm of only eyes for you. That's it. Now, when that is given and received by both, this forges trust. It's wonderful. And that promise is pledged to last, as long as we both shall live, if you're married, you've said these words. Now when, horrifically, one person commits adultery, what they do is they violate that trust, they break the marriage covenant. The marriage covenant comes undone. So that is one of the grounds for divorce that Moses spoke of. It's helpful to look how he puts it in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse one. He says, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, that's the NIV, literally a cause for sexual immorality in the Hebrew. And then he writes her a certificate of divorce and gives it to her and sends her from his house and if after she leaves his house and becomes the wife of another man, etc., etc. We're looking at verse one, divorce is permitted. It talks about a case where a man finds his wife to have, have had committed adultery and then divorces her. Now in this case, the man is the sinned against party and that's why he can divorce her um, because his wife in this case has broken the marriage covenant through her adultery. So from this we get the principle that adultery is the first grounds for divorce in the Bible. The second, which Jesus doesn't mention in Matthew 19, is neglect. Exodus chapter 21, uh, verse 10 and 11. If a man marries another woman, a second wife, that's got issues, doesn't it? Then he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing, and marital rights. If he does not provide her with these three things, she is to go free without payment of money. This picks up halfway through a case where a man has married his female slave. Now, again, that's controversial, right? So this is not saying slavery is good, okay? Slavery is not good, but it was there in cultures at that time. They had to make laws to regulate this. So if a man has a female slave and he decides to marry her, but then he conveniently goes off and marries another woman, 
okay? Then this law was written, it's the first law right after the Ten Commandments, right? It's the first thing that's said after the Ten Commandments was written to protect the rights of the vulnerable, the slave woman in that culture. And it says, if a man marries his female slave and goes off and gets married to another woman, then the husband must not neglect his first wife. He must provide her with food, clothing, and marital rights, which means sex. And that if he neglects her in these areas, that is grounds for divorce. It says she is to go free. Free, no longer a slave, no longer his wife. Meaning he, she's divorced, right? And that's declared legally in the eyes of the community so that, as a free woman, she can then remarry and be provided for. Divorce was, in other words, given uh, where, where sin has torn apart the marriage covenant and it was given to protect the vulnerable. And in case you're wondering uh, about abuse, where does that fit in? I think this comes under ne neglect. I'm happy to have that conversation with you. So the Old Testament gives two grounds for divorce, adultery and neglect. Now, in Matthew 19, why does Jesus only mention the first? Why is he silent about this neglect thing? It's because he was only asked about the first. And we need to understand something of the context. This, in the time of Jesus, was a hot topic. For about 100 years before Jesus, there had been a, a big debate in rabbinical circles running about adultery about, uh, as the grounds for divorce. And specifically, what was meant by that phrase which we read, a cause of immorality in Deuteronomy chapter 24. So I'll try and simplify things. One group said a cause of immorality just meant adultery. Adultery causes immorality, right? But another group said, but anything could cause someone to commit adultery Bad looks, bad breath, bad cooking, resentment, grey hair, anything could cause adultery. Now that is the position the Pharisees took, which is why they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? We don't hear it, but they were tapping right into this debate and asking Jesus' point of view. Now when Jesus answered, he firmly rejects the Pharisees' position, it is not okay to divorce your wife for any and every reason. When Moses spoke about what would cause immorality, says Jesus, he meant adultery. So in his answer, Jesus upholds both marriage and divorce, but only when the marriage has been broken through either adultery, which is what the question was about, or we could add neglect. But in his answer, Jesus does add something in addition to the Old Testament. He also says, only if the offending spouse is unrepentant. He doesn't say it here, he said it last week. Chapter 19 comes after chapter 18. In chapter 18, we had a big discussion about forgiveness. Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Seven times? No, I tell you, not seven times, but 70 times seven. Keep forgiving. And if someone repents, like a brother who sins against you, be reconciled, accept him back. So if we put last week's passage and this week's passage together, we see Jesus is actually even more conservative in talking about divorce than is the Old Testament. He's saying sin need not end in divorce. If your spouse sins against you and breaks a marriage covenant through either neglect or adultery and then they repent, 
and you're the sinned against one, you should, tr- you should not seek to divorce them, you should try and forgive, you should try and stay in the marriage. But if they're not repenting, if they're only making overtures of repentance, but it's only talk, there's no real change, this happens in abuse situations often, I'm so sorry, I won't do it again, then they do it again, I'm so sorry, won't you forgive me? And then they do it again, you know, it just goes round and round. In that case, repentance hasn't happened, divorce is permissible. Now, in wading through all this, it might seem like marriage is all bad, (laughs) Um, because we've been talking about sin in marriage, right? It isn't, it isn't. I want to say this to you single people out there. But talk about divorce makes it sound like it would be smarter not to marry, and that's what the disciples say in verse 10. If that's the situation, it's better not to marry. So now Jesus is going to talk about singleness, and he says effectively, look, I hear what you're saying, that it's better not to marry, but Frankly, not everyone can live with that alternative. Only those to whom that gift has been given. Singleness is a gift, it's something that's given. God gives some people the gift of being contentedly contentedly single, but singleness is not a gift that everyone can live with. So if you're single and you think I don't want to remain single, then in your head you need to be careful of just saying, oh well it's better not to marry. That's the other alternative, right? (laughs) Okay, because we note that in talking through the options for single people, he doesn't, Jesus doesn't present casual sex or living in an unmarried sexual de facto relationship as viable alternative options. And that's not just because they hadn't been invented yet, they were around at the time, John chapter four, Jesus speaks to a woman at the well, you've had five husbands, the one you're with now is not a husband, she's living in a de facto relationship, right? He knows that. But in talking about singleness, he doesn't present that as an option, either you are single or you are married, that is it. And Jesus gives three reasons why someone might have the gift of singleness. He says, well, they're born that way. Now, when we hear that, of course, given our culture and the debates we've had, we think that means, when someone says they're born that way, that means they experience same-sex attraction, right? Now, maybe Jesus meant that, maybe. He could have meant, or probably more likely, uh, some people are born, frankly, without a great sex drive. They're contentedly asexual. It's not an issue for them. It's not most people, but it's some. And that person could have the gift of singleness. The second reason that Jesus gives is that they were made that way by men. Uh, men something happened, of course, uh, back to, uh, to slaves. Uh, castration rarely happens now, so let's move on. The third reason is that some people, verse 12, choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. That is, he's saying, some people choose to be single and live a chaste life to better serve God with their lives. Uh, This is admirable, because it's a cost to them. Our church is so blessed to partner with missionaries overseas, including, of course, a wonderful lady like Maggie Cruz, a single woman who hasn't been married, who for decades has given her life to working on the streets of vast cities to work with street children in the name of Jesus. What a wonderful thing to do with your life. 
I've heard it said by several heads of mission agencies that, <laughs> you know, what do we say? One single woman on the field is worth three married men on the field in terms of what they can do. Um, because their output for the kingdom of heaven. Being contentedly single is a gift. Paul the Apostle was one such man. He better served the Lord more fully. It's a good decision. Jesus says the one who can accept this should. And as a church, we need to honor the single men and women amongst us who have decided to go down that route. They're wonderful. Now that brings me lastly uh, to how we treat one another as a church. So we began by saying, look, this, there's no uniform situation here. There's, there's vast complexities and differences in the relationships just amongst people within this room. Okay, we need to, on these topics of divorce, remarriage and singleness, I think be extremely sensitive with one another. What does that mean? First of all, it means we need to be slow to judge especially with people who are struggling in their marriage or who have been divorced. There can be great stigma in churches uh, for such people, almost as if they feel like they need to explain. But we need to be, as a people, very slow to judge because we don't know all the factors. Uh, we can see them, but we do not know what's happened behind closed doors or in people's previous past that they bring into their current situation. Um, we do know that if someone has been divorced or they're heading through it, it's extremely painful. We need to be sensitive and slow to judge. And we remember from Jeremiah, God himself is a divorcee and divorce is a provision um, from God in a sinful world to protect the vulnerable. It doesn't mean if someone's been divorced that they have been the grievous sinner. Second, we need to be kind with everyone. Whatever circumstance we're in, we are all sinners in need of grace, aren't we? We, we all have our failings, we all have our sins. And we need to treat one another with the kindness of the gospel, uh, the kindness that God treats us with. And not, uh, and not everyone finds their situation easy. Third, we need to honour one another. We need to honour everyone who's seeking to be faithful to Christ in their situation, whether they're single, whether they're widowed, whether they're divorced, whether they're remarried. Some people here have been divorced in extremely difficult circumstances, but they have conducted themselves with integrity and godliness and grace, which would make us all applaud if we knew. Some here are single who would love to be married, but it hasn't happened, or once were married, but aren't now. And you're walking in faithfulness to Christ. We honor you. And then there are some who are using their single, singleness at the moment to serve the Lord. Um, you know, green team, CE camp, using their time to serve in a way when you're married and kids, it's difficult. Okay. Finally, we need to, I think, um, realize that our identity is not primarily in who we're married to or who we're not married to as a person. Uh, we need to locate our identity in whether or not in whether we're married or single now. That's not the best description actually of who we are. And our marriages or marriages we don't have, they're not the ultimate thing. Our core identity is being married to Christ. Uh, he is the bridegroom 
and we, his people, are the bride. That's, that's the basic reality, and that's the ultimate reality. And even the best of human marriages that we might see here can only be an illustration of that one. That's the marriage that defines us, and that's what we ought to think most of, actually. Okay, well, let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we need your help, and these are personal, deep issues, and now as we think about them, and how they apply to each one of us. We pray that we would be sensitive to one another, that we would uh, be slow to judge, we would be kind, we would honour one another, and we would see our identity first and foremost as in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.